The fifth conference of the retreat explores the challenges of imaging a personal God as the fullness of gender rather than as either male or female. It calls upon images from the wisdom literature and the prophets to open our imaginations to receive the fullness of the revelation of God's being in relationship with us. So this afternoon's talk is um, entitled, according to the thing, you know, Feminine Images of God in the Prophets and in the Wisdom Literature. Um, yeah, we'll touch on that a little bit. Uh, we've been talking about, uh, up until now, um, how women in particular in the story of God's salvation, the story of God's gathering his people and accompanying and saving us and redeeming us, what roles they have been playing and how significant those roles are, even as they might be insignificant in the way they're portrayed. They're pretty deep and pretty essential and important. Um, but it does raise the question of um, what does it tell us about our God? What might we know about our God? And that can always be a thorny question. So I'm going to start by saying it's all Michelangelo's fault. <laughs> I don't know if he was the first. I don't know. Maybe someone went before him. Maybe he got it from somewhere. But the image of God as an old man with a white beard is infallibly painted on the roof of the Sistine Chapel, peering down at all of us um, from the center of the church's ministry, uh, declaring, this is your God. And it's hard to argue with the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And yet so many people are saying and have been for a long time that cozying up to a, uh, an old man with a white beard isn't necessarily the experience of the transcendent, the experience of the beloved, the experience of the one to whom we owe our existence, our life, our sustenance, and to whom we are longing to be with for eternity is enough. Oh, I wonder, do any of us, well, maybe there's some of us, but how many of us want to spend eternity with the God that is depicted on the roof of the, or the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Um, like, hmm, all right. <laughs> but there it is. And um, we're so used to, it's still a very hard habit to break. It's been a, it's getting close to a, a 40 or 50 year struggle in my own experience to try not to refer to God with masculine pr pronouns when I teach and preach. And um, I get a, probably a D plus on that one. It's, it's so hard to do, um, so painful to do, so difficult to do. And, and the twisting and the gym, gymnastics it takes to not use male pronouns, fully aware that if you use female pronouns, you make people very uncomfortable, or some people very uncomfortable. And that's, that's tricky. Um, in the scriptures themselves, the predominant images of God, they, they dwarf the feminine images of God that I thought I was going to talk about. But the images of God is, as a judge, as a warrior, as a builder, as a planter, as the owner and dresser of a vineyard and vines and, 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 and uh, growing grapes, as a shepherd. Yes, it's possible that Females could take all of those roles and do, but 
when we think of builders and shepherds and even judges and owners of vineyards and planters, they do easily tend to be male, not, not female. And yet in the prophetic writings, there are the images of God as um, a mother giving birth, a woman in labor trying to give birth to a people. And in that prophetic literature, it is work. It is not an easy birth. It's not an easy delivery. There's effort and work that God, our mother, is putting into our existence, into bringing us into being. The masculine God speaks, and it happens. The feminine God has to go through labor for life to come forth. Um, there's the images of uh, holding the child in the palm of her hand. The image of God is holding a child in the palm of her hand telling us that even, even if a mother could forget her child, God, our mother, will never forget us. And that has always been, for me personally, not always, but for the majority of my adult life, a very poignant image of God, as one whose mother suffered for eight years with Alzheimer's disease and forgot me, overtly forgot me, although I never believed for an instant that she forgot me, but that God would never forget us, even if our mothers might forget us. It's a powerful, poignant image of God. Um, there's the image of God as the gatherer, the gatherer of children, the gatherer of families, not the disperser, but the gatherer of families. And those are powerful and beautiful images of God. Sometimes when I try to try to teach students, and this gets harder and harder because we are in more and more unfamiliar territory with every year that passes, try to teach them what on earth we're doing when we go to mass. I try to describe it as, it's like going to your grandmother's house on a Sunday afternoon, fully aware that some of them don't have grandmothers to go to on Sunday afternoon, so that gets hard. But it's like going to your grandmother's house on Sunday afternoon, no matter what you've done all week long, no matter how bad you've been or how good you've been, it doesn't matter because your grandmother's going to hug you and love you and kiss you and welcome you all the same. And that's what happens when we gather in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's our mother, brother, sister, spirit, embracing us and welcoming us and gathering us. And then what happens? We tell some stories. We share some things and then we get fed. Then we get sent out to do work. But this, this, this experience of Eucharist and liturgy is a very familiar, if not downright feminine experience of being gathered by our mother to be restored, healed, loved, forgiven to the extent that we think we need forgiveness, but our mothers and grandmothers never really need to forgive us. That's just there. And, um, and then being fed in an abundance and then going out to get beat up again in the patriarchal male dominated world that we live in, only to be invited back again next week, just to be loved. And well, I'll tell you, they greet this with yawns. <laughs> 
kind of kind of stirs me a little bit. Um, and of course, in the wisdom literature, we get the image of uh, wisdom, Sophia, feminine side of God, working as a consort, as a partner, joining with the Creator, as the muse, as the inspiration, as the as the um, the joy, the playfulness in creation. It's so easy to consider our masculine image of God as a mechanical engineer. And the mechanical engineer needs the playful Sophia to turn a beautifully mechanized, regular, ordered world into a place that's actually fun and beautiful and aesthetically pleasing. And so the scriptures and the wisdom literature give us another side of the personality of the creator, a feminine side of the personality of the creator, who brings the color, who brings the aesthetics, who brings the joy, who brings the fun into the world that needs to have some working order to it. And, and so there's the back and forth between the order and the regularity and the systems that work like clockwork, and then the fun. That's, that's all part of it. And um, you get this, just this, this archetypal energy. I, I am like, you know, we have, uh, I, in, you know, so I got my undergraduates in there one handful. Then I teach graduate students in our uh, master's program in spirituality and spiritual direction. And the graduate students are my age and older for the most part. They tend to be people who have been beaten up by life in some ways. Some of them have come through it fairly unscathed. They usually are fairly professionally accomplished. They have done their careers. They have raised their families. They have lived their life. And they have been through the mill of trying to be Catholic Christians or Christians, Christian Christians, or some kind of seeker in the world. And they've got tons of questions. And the answers that bore the undergraduates don't satisfy them at all. And so we kind of look at teaching them Christian spirituality. I'm trying to figure what that is. I told you the other night that we start with the spirituality of Jesus of Nazareth, which is news to everyone. <laughs> it's news to everyone. We'll, we'll be talking more about that in the next couple of days as we talk about Jesus um, and his encounters and, and, and engagement with, with the feminine and with women. Um, but they have a real, they are allergic. It's fascinating. They are allergic to the word doctrine. They have no idea what the word means, but they hear the word doctrine and they immediately equate it with oppression, with a lack of freedom, with a question that has been resolved and foist, and the answer foisted upon us. And the idea that I try to introduce to them that doctrine is never the last word, it's the first word inviting us into mystery they, there's better ways to do that with doctor, than doctrine. They just hate the word, hate the word, hate the concept. But we do end up talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. And it's hard work to get minds and hearts moved away from, this is not a mathematical problem to be solved. This is a mystery to be lived, and it's a mystery of relationship. And... You know, and, and yet the, the whole met tradition of the church after the first couple of centuries, once they figured out the mathematical problem, 
got stuck in it and didn't allow this experience of the revelation of God as three in one to continue to reveal the mystery. And I introduced the idea that I've heard, read, that the Trinity is a communion of relationships without domination or diminishment. So it is a communion of relationships of absolute equality without domination or diminishment in which each person in the communion offers freely and completely the gift of themselves to the others. So all three are offering themselves completely and freely to the others. And then all three are receiving from the others completely the self-gift of the others. So it's this constant and complete and total giving and receiving. The communion of relationships that I try to try to make the cases is the blueprint of creation. Creation mimics the Trinity. And it is meant to be a communion of relationships, three, three billion, 300 billion, it doesn't matter how many threes there are, but a communion of relationship without domination or diminishment, in which in the experience of the communion, no one is put down and no one is raised up because everyone is equally giving everything they are to the others and receiving everything the others are back in return. And I think about that, it's like, I can get to giving. I'm not so sure I want everything everyone else is giving me. <laughs> so there's a little problem on that, but there's a huge difference between a communion of relationships of giving and receiving and a relational matrix based on taking and hoarding. And the whole work of creation and redemption is to restore or have for the first time this communion of relationships be one of giving and receiving rather than one of taking and hoarding. And somehow or another, that is neither masculine nor feminine alone, but requires both absolutely in some way, shape, or form. I'm particularly fond of Augustine's, um, when he finally gets around to, to making some sense about the Trinity, um, because he doesn't make a lot of sense. I can't understand what he's saying. Until he talks about um, the triadic structure of love, and the Trinity is, carries with it the triadic structure of love, in which there is a lover, there is the beloved, and there is the love between them. And it's it, and the beloved, the beloved, and the love between them are not necessarily they're constantly moving, but it's this constant this 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 energy of love that isn't just energy, it's actually personal that's happening that is the, the life of the Trinity. And there's, you know, okay, dwell on that for a little bit. And maybe, maybe this worrying about what God looks like, although that's still kind of important, 
might go away, but maybe we might begin to begin to be able to let this doctrine not be the last word, but the first word, inviting us into an ever deepening mystery whose only goal is the revelation of a communion of love. And we might have more trouble with the communion of love part. And that's where we might need healing because we're just not used to that. It's not, that's not our experience, except in very rare and isolated occasions. We live in a world of taking and hoarding. Um, and so you hoard so they don't take. And you take so that you have what the others have. It's, it's, Trinity is a completely different kind of thing. So we'll start a little bit here with um, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, um, which, which, in which it says, you know, it, has, it quotes God as saying, let us make human beings after our likeness. Isn't that great? Plural pronouns. It could mean anything. It could mean two, it could mean three, it could mean myriads of persons, but it's a plural pronoun. And then it says, God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And suddenly the pronoun police are ready, <laughs> ready to strike. <laughs> I've always been tempted. I haven't had the guts to do that when I'm asked for my pronouns to say, I, me, and mine. <laughs> um, but we've got this, this, this section of, of, of the scriptures talking about our creation by the creator, our creator, who is referred to as us and he, but there's this us that won't go away and then he creates us in his or their image, male and female. He created them. So the answer to the question, the problem is right there, if only we could get our heads and hearts around it. What is the image of God? What does God look like? What, how can we know what God looks like? And the first answer is, he looks like us. Not me or not you, he looks like us, male and female. But of course, here in the 21st century, that's not enough. <laughs> there are not dyads, this is not a, <laughs> this male and female are two, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff in between, around, surround, above, and all this kind of stuff. And if we look at us, truly look at us, without leaving anybody out, without sorry, saying, sorry, you're not, you don't qualify for this us. Sorry, you don't qualify to be part of the image of the creator because there's something strange about you or you're not fitting the pattern of conformity. Then we are doing violence to how God is trying to reveal God's self to us. Because just in that sentence, what does God look like? God looks like us. And if there's anybody who isn't included in that us, 
our concept of God is deficient. It doesn't matter color, it doesn't matter race, it doesn't matter how many genders there actually are because we're still counting. Um, it doesn't matter what kind of, how sexual relationships are, des are designed and desires. He looks, God looks like us and all of it somehow. And we might have trouble getting our eyes and our heads around the mystery that is us. And when we reduce the mystery that is us to things that we can grasp and understand, we're reducing God to our image and likeness rather than God making us in God's image and likeness. So there's, there's lots, of, lots of invitations to this mystery. And as soon as we clear them up too easily, we're wrong. St. Augustine said that too. I got a couple of St. Augustine things here today. Um, he said, um, whenever you say you understand God, it is true you have understood something, but it is equally true that whatever it is you have understood, it is not God. <laughs> Our ability to conceive God is limited, allowing God to be an ever unfolding mystery that constantly surprises us rather than offends us as something new comes into the picture is a spiritual discipline that isn't easy and can be kind of feel like there's a lot of slippery ground under us, but it just might be the mystery into which we are invited. All that kind of stuff. So I said, started by blaming Michelangelo. And I wonder if that's the reason why it's, it's only, uh, well, Hinduism allows, has images of all, because they have thousands of gods, so they have images of all of them, um, you know, sort of stuff. But most of the great religious traditions of the world forbid depictions of the image of God in visual form. Some even forbid the mentioning of the name of God. I think as soon as you put a name on something, we are limiting it. And yet, certainly in our, in our Catholic, Catholic world, it's like, let's draw more pictures, more stained glass, more depictions. Um, Let's look at this. And there's the whole spirituality of the Eastern Church of the iconography and our Western Church of all of our statues and stained glass windows and, and art and all sorts of depictions of God. And the myriad of it is, is amazing. And some appeals to some people more than others. But we've got to grapple with that because none of it captures, captures God, unless it is an invitation to say, this is a door. Open it. Don't stay on this side looking at this. Open this door of mystery and step inside and see where it takes you and see what happens. Um, speaking of St. Augustine, um, he's, he was always, was one of his great spiritual struggles was um, what was preventing him from really, well, he had three things preventing him, but one of them was he had a very inadequate notion of God. And it was, being, it was being kept inadequate by his dalliance with the Manichaean dualistic cults. But he, he needed a lot of education. He needed his imagination opened. And it wasn't until he met Ambrose and the Neoplatonists in Milan that he began to understand 
that God, we, we are not the image of God. No, God is not made in our image and likeness with physical bodies occupying space and time. We are the image and likeness of God who is spirit and therefore not confined to space and time. And he grappled with that for a long time. Um, and then when he writes his confessions in the, in the first book of his confessions, he says, what are you, I ask, but the Lord God? For who else is Lord except the Lord? And who is God if not our God? And then he starts. You are most high, excellent, most powerful, omnipotent, supremely merciful, and supremely just, most hidden yet intimately present, infinitely beautiful and infinitely strong, steadfast yet elusive, unchanging yourself though you control the change in all things, never new, never old, renewing all things, yet wearing down the proud though they know it not ever active, ever at rest, gathering while knowing no need, supporting and filling and guarding, creating and nurturing and perfecting, seeking although you lack nothing. You love without frenzy. You are jealous yet secure. You regret without sadness. You grow angry yet remain tranquil. You alter your works but never your plan. You take back what you find although you never lost it. You are never in need, yet you rejoice in your gains. Never avaricious, yet you demand profits. You allow us to pay you more than you demand. And so you become our debtor. Yet which of us possesses anything that does not already belong to you? You owe us nothing, yet you pay our debts, your debts. You write off our debts to you, yet you lose nothing thereby. So Augustine is struggling not only with this philosophical nature of God, but he's struggling with the personality of God, which is absolutely essential as we struggle with this mystery. Because in the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian scriptures, while God is this transcendent power that is the source of all that is, it is being, God is being itself, the creator and ruler of the universe, power and might behind everything that is and the energy that sustains and protects it. The God of the scriptures and the God of Jesus is a person, not a force, not a machine, not just energy, not a nuclear reactor of some sort. God is a person and a person has a personality. And maybe that's where we, we get maybe sidetracked into, you know, God is a person, therefore God must be male or female. Or God is male and female and still be a person. And we might struggle with some of that sometimes. But if we can transcend the box of genders that we're so used to operating as we, we try to understand the world and we start categorizing everything and find ourselves stuck every once in a while because we see created reality and it doesn't fit into a box and we're invited into mystery or something else. The same thing may be true of God. Um, he's, God is a person. And I'm not so sure Augustine would completely agree with me, but I 
lots of trouble, because the scriptures proclaim this loud and clear. This personal God has emotions. This personal God, see, Augustine might struggle with that. He gives it, yes, you get sad, but you're not really. This personal God feels it, feels us, feels longing, which Augustine will admit, feels jealous, which Augustine will admit, feels sad. What God doesn't feel is disappointed. God doesn't feel that God failed in the way he made us. God doesn't experience, God heart breaks for us as we mess up ourselves and move away from ourselves and run away from ourselves that are our true home. God heart breaks, but never with disappointment only with longing for our return and a patient waiting for us to come home again. And Augustine and the scriptures, it's right near the end of the scriptures in the, the letters of John, where it really kind of is the last word. Who is God? God is love. And love is not a noun. Love is a verb. And it has been suggested that as soon as we try to put names on God, we put genders on God, we put physical descriptions on God, we have turned God into a noun, into an object, rather than a verb that is a subject who does. And what God does is what God's personality is. And quite frankly, that's true for all of us. What we do is the expression of who we are. Although sometimes we have a distorted understanding of who we are. So what we do is not the expression of our true selves. It's the expression of our false, distorted selves. But God's true self is love. And so what God does only, always, and everywhere is love. And it is a love that seeks, a love that longs, a love that only wants to restore and never punish only wants to welcome home and never banish, only wants to gather, never scatter, only wants to include, never exclude, only wants the joy of us to know ourselves as God knows us, which is more spectacular than probably any, any self-indulgent narcissistic fantasy we might have of how great we are, how God knows us, is more magnificent than any of that, and that's what God longs for us. Um, God is a God who is emotionally moved, and the prophetic literature is really striking in that regard. God's emotions are all over the place in the prophets. Wisdom's a little more stoic. But the prophets are, are, are highly emotional. And yes, it sounds like God is angry. And yes, it sounds like God is deeply hurt and disappointed. And yes, it sounds like God is ready to wipe us out. With, with, God is ready to punish us, replace us, destroy us. And it is never that. It is God's passion, passionate longing for us. 
St. Thomas Aquinas in his proofs for the existence of God can one point says, you know, something had to set everything in motion. Something then that whatever it is that set everything in motion is what we understand as God. But that thing that sets everything in motion is known as the unmoved mover. But nothing forced God to do that. Setting into, into motion the whole pattern of creation. And Abraham Joshua Heschel, the Jewish, Jewish rabbi, writing about God of the prophets, particularly Hosea. You can't read the prophet Hosea and call God the unmoved mover. Because the prophet Hosea is predicting a God who is mood swings, of alternating mood swings, of profound um, loss and sadness as we wander away from our true selves, chasing false selves instead of the self that is the image and likeness of the one who created us. God appears angry and ready. You know, and there's, it, there is great sadness and there is weeping and there's, there is not disappointment. There is only longing. So first half of the book of Hosea, we hear God's anguish. And anguish is different than disappointment. God's anguish at God's loss of us rather than our loss of God, but God's loss of us. And the second half of, of the prophet Hosea is God's pleading and longing that we return, that we come back and be received and welcomed like grandma on Sunday afternoon, no matter what we've done, sort of thing. Um, one of the, Actually, to realize what you're getting on this retreat is pretty much everything I've read in the last two years. <laughs> and I've read some great stuff. <laughs> and some of it is for teaching. Some of it is just for my own education. Um, and I wasn't even aware of that as I'm putting this together. But things are striking me. And, um, one of the books that I've read and tried to teach my students this year was Greg Boyle's third book, The Whole Language, which just came out in 2021. Um, so he's got three books about his work in Los Angeles with uh, the members of gangs trying to offer them um, the way back home to themselves in, in some very striking ways, up against a system that seeks to solve the problem of gang violence and, and gang lifestyle by separating them, isolating them, putting them in jail. How do we keep ourselves safe from the gangs? Well, we send them further away from home. Greg Boyle's answer is, we bring them home. We find a way to bring them home and bring them home to themselves. And in this book, he starts off by saying, you know, the real problem is an inadequate notion of God. And it doesn't matter how you image God in terms of physical characteristics or general, gen, um, gender uh, identity or anything like that. It's somehow or another an inadequate notion of God is where we project onto God what we would be if we were God. <laughs> and that's never going to be quite right because um, we limit the power of God by creating God in our own image rather than letting God create us in God's image. And so 
know, we miss the God waiting for us to return. And that's an adequate God. And the purpose, you know, what's waiting? God is waiting. This is what God does, God's personality. Waiting for us to return so that we can have a party, a feast. Feast of the, of the prodigal son. That's what God's hungry for. Not the fatted calf, but us to share it with. And he wants that more than anything, celebration. Um, and there's no judgment or punishment on, before the celebration. Um, and in a more adequate notion of God, as Greg Boyle is pointing out, so we start and not start worrying about what God looks like. Um, it might help, might not. But what God does, and Greg suggests that an adequate notion of God, if your notion of God isn't a God who's laughing every other second with you, for you, laughter of delight in who you are, your notion of God is too small. God is a God of laughter. And so whatever the images of God that comes from the scriptures of the wisdom literature uh, that are deeply passionate, but somewhere in the midst of all that, there is the God laughing and taking delight in us. And um, in his first book, Greg Boyle has this great line, which is blazing on my memory. You know, God is far too busy being delighted in us to have any time to be disappointed. So, so many of us walk around sure that we are this great disappointment to our creator. And I don't want to say that's insulting to God, but it's certainly a distortion of what is true about our God. Our God is delighted in us and never more delighted than we are willing to find our way home to our true selves. The real God doesn't know what we're talking about when we talk about being judged, being condemned, being punished. God isn't transactional. If you love me, I'll love you back. Not waiting for us to be good because we already are. He's just waiting us for us to be joyful. To be able, we know that we are in the presence of the real God, our real selves in the presence of the real God, when both of us are laughing and crying at the same time, perhaps, but not tears of, of remorse and sadness and separation, but tears of relief and joy, punctuated by laughing hysterically at the joy that is around us. So I'm not so sure that it matters whether our image of God is of a, an old man with a white beard, although as long as that old man with a white beard is laughing, laughing with us, waiting to welcome us, that's fine. Or if the image of God is, is of, a, of a wonderful, loving grandmother, or our image of God is of us all together. It doesn't matter what this image of God looks like. What matters is what we see and experience our God giving us. Welcome, restoration, healing, 
food, love, communion, and joy. If the God we are praying to isn't a God who is laughing and making us laugh, isn't a God who is crying with sadness for our losses, but without disappointment, isn't a God who is feeling acutely our absence and is overjoyed when we return to ourselves and to God, then it doesn't matter whether your God is male or female or any of the other 10,000 genders in between. If our God isn't laughing and taking delight in us, we've got a bad image of God, which just needs to be corrected. And so in the next couple of days, we'll see what we can do to allow Jesus to reveal this God to us, um, particularly in, in the, how Jesus engaged in his relationships with the, the hosts of women that he met in his ministry and his, his feminine um, descriptions, the parables, um, many of which are a little male, but he's got some beautiful female parables in there. So we'll look at those and see what, what that tells us about this God who um, is deeply personal, uh, even as it is the God who sustains the entire universe in, in existence, sustenance, and in love. All right, have a great evening.